0: Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics!
1: Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger.
0: And here are your
1: hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to the show. Our show. This show. We have nothing to say, other than, it is better to burn out than to fade away. And then we'll have a bit where we march down and get medals. For ending our show. <laughs> For ending our own show. Yeah. For committing show suicide. Yeah. <laughs> Shows aren't supposed to reach the natural conclusion, dude. It would be a... It would be a first. What is a natural conclusion to a yeah. podcast? It depends what that podcast's goal is. Yeah, if the goal is to cover every single issue of a specific comic book and you get would. to the end of that goal, yeah. then that would be the end of your podcast. The mighty Sean Engel. Hi, Sean! of oh, just one of the guys oh. is nearing the end of his stated goal. Hmm. So then his show will end and he will have achieved it and the, the thing will exist as a, a, a perfect body of work. See, we never had a stated goal, did we?
0: If we did, we lost it a long uh, time ago.
1: Yeah, we never said this is your <laughs> your mission to, to do stuff and at the end of that stuff we'll stop doing stuff. Yeah. And stuff. Stuff, yo. <laughs> Fat stacks, yo. Anyway, yeah, so it ends when it ends, but it will end spectacularly. We will not burn out. Yeah, uh, yeah, we will burn <laughs> 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 oh, 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 and I've not even been drinking. Lovely listener. Uh, should we do an email? Okay, just one. Yeah, we're only going to do one tonight. We don't want to confuse you too much. We don't want to confuse me at all, quite frankly. Gene Hendricks emailed in. Hi, Gene. With um, an email entitled, Legacy Heroes. Greetings to you comic aficionados from across the pond. It's a pretty big pond. Yeah, yeah. You don't have any ducks on it, do you? It's not the kind of pond that you, you go to, to to feed bread to the ducks. You're not supposed to feed bread to ducks. Uh, I know. Does it make work. them blow up? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I read <laughs> on Wikipedia, so it must be true. <laughs> okay. No, <laughs> if there's... you feed them specific bread, they go pop. Yeah, it... <laughs> there's the
0: sea pirates that feed the sea ducks
1: <laughs> and do the sea pirates have a sea Atlantis
0: they, they, no they don't that's stupid oh. Atlantis is a myth
1: <laughs> <laughs> don't say that the Atlanteans will obviously consider that derogatory to their species Oh, okay. okay. you will be considered a hater of Atlanteans and you don't want that, because
0: no, no, no. they'll
1: pick at you. Yeah, they'll,
0: and they'll, th- they'll throw fish from Yeah, the they'll throw fish at and you'll smell. Which isn't that bad, because we don't live in the coast,
1: so I guess. I'm they would the have system. to throw very, very big fish at a very, very great distance. They would. Wouldn't they? But then they wouldn't be a myth anymore. But then they'd smack you in the face, though, like the dancers in Monty Python. Yes. <laughs> anyway, should we look at Gene's email, which has probably nothing to, to do with, with fish slapping. I'm sure I've said it before, but I am a huge fan of legacy heroes, says G. Kyle Rayner was one of those characters for which I was in On the Ground Floor. It was very interesting watching grow as a hero and deal with his personal-slash-secret identity issues along the way. As for the not-so-fantastic four, I like that it was obviously meant not to be serious. I happen to be a fan of the Dan Kvetch Ghost Rider, included here, and yes, he always was that pompous. Part of the Ghost Rider arc, at least in the beginning of the series, was that he was the spirit of vengeance, but he didn't know what he might be beyond that. The character goes from purposely two-dimensional to something more layered. Impulse, on the other hand, was one of the characters I just found annoying. He was always, without fail, the hyperactive preteen. It wasn't until he became Kid Flash that the character became interesting. To me, anyway, the Wally West Flash, of course, was one of my favourites. Again, watching a hero grow and mature into the role that he has inherited from another, all the time trying to live up to that example. From Gene, good. We like, we glad you liked the Legacy Heroes episode. I just thought that would be fun. There was no rhyme or reason to that one. I knew that they weren't going to be crap okay at least not crap on a level that other things were crap yeah that we talked about Gene hosts the Hammer podcast available on Two True Freaks on Two True Freaks Who True Freaks is a completely different show Bram on it so it must be good Chris and Cindy Franklin have emailed in new kids in town I'm pretty convinced once again Cindy had no part in this
0: what if they we were all written by her? That would be really cool. Oh, Chris reads it out loud. And Cindy types yeah, it up for him yeah. correcting spelling and grammar. Yes. Excellent. How can you spell wrongly if you're... If you're sp- dictator Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Spelling. If you're really bad
1: at spelling, you can spell wrong when you speak. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Layla's. Hello, Christopher. Kyle Rayner. I like him. I liked the character, but I hated how he became Green Lantern. This was not a temporary stunt, but a status quo change now. You two go off and debate. It was a status quo change. We have no debate there. DC had no intention of Hal coming back, ever. I'm thoroughly convinced of that. Had Hal died a hero's death, I'd have taken Kyle with open arms. But making Hal go nuts just for the sake of the story was pure rubbish. Not Ron Mars' fault, as he was directed to do this by editor Kevin Dooley. Outgoing Green Lantern writer Jared Jones had his original, previously approved scripts for issues 48 through 50 thrown out, and was asked to cooperate with this drastic change. He chose to walk instead. I think that's one reason I took to Green Lantern Rebirth so much. It righted a very old wrong... Imagine a writer coming in and wiping away Sin's past from Spidey history. I wasn't even buying GL regularly, but this affair was the first time I'd felt like a comic company violated their unwritten contract with their fans and woefully mangled the characters we'd supported for years. And yes, Alex, the girl in the refrigerator, the poster child for misogyny in comics. Despite all the websites, articles and fan rage spewed at this gruesome development, mainstream comics are more gratuitously violent than ever. But now it's equal opportunity violence, so that's okay. The FF run by Simonson was one of the few times I actively picked up the Bump monthly. The new FF was a fun storyline, and Art Adams' art is always a delight. Let's not dare call him a McFarlane clone. That was at you, that. You called him a McFarlane clone, you did. Okay. Despite, and he was really clever about it, in right. that he went back in time and did it before McFarlane did. That's always the best way I find to rip somebody off, to do it before them. Uh, yeah, okay. I think that's clever. Okay. Yeah, okay what up to? Adams is a fine artist continues Chris with a distinct style not a mediocre artist who uses style as a crutch to cover up lack of talent Ghost Rider was huge at this time my teenage self was eating up his book and all his guest appearances I can't explain it now much like my teen fascination with McFarlane it just appealed to me at the time go figure Did you guys catch the somewhat subtle Kid Flash logo on the cover of Impulse's first appearance? I think everyone assumed he'd take the Kid Flash name, but Bart wasn't having it. I don't think we did catch that, did we? No. No. It was another brilliant move on Wade's part to have the two cousins really dislike one another. It's a shame Waringo didn't stay on The Flash. Heck, he barely got to introduce Bart. Unlike some other titles I enjoyed at the time, but can barely see why now, Wade's Flash is still one of my favourite runs, particularly this era, before he started repeating some of these themes over and over. I totally agree with Andy that Waringo's style was the anti-image, clean, cartoony, energetic and positive. He is definitely missed. Looking forward to next week's episode. You guys should have a field day with bad costume choices. From Chris. What did we do after that one? Oh yeah, it was the What's-His-Name wasn't it? It was Sue with a boob window and a yeah. mid drift and about Superman dressed as Brian Botano and yes, what would Brian Botano do if he was here today? I'm, I'm sure, sure he'd kick an SO R two because that's, that's what Brian Botano would do.
0: Brian Botano was in the Alps fighting grizzly bears. <laughs> Uses mystical value breath and save the millions. uh
1: <laughs> but what would Superman do? He would dress as Brian Botano. <laughs> yeah. And the other one. Oh, yeah, it was Spider-Armor, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, dear God. Let's move on and never refer to the Spider-Armor again. Bobby Corkley's emailed in. From William Randolph Hearst to goody-goody heroes. Hey, Layla, this email goes back a ways, starting with the Clone Saga and looking at the 90s. Oh, good. An all-encompassing email. I like that. Number one, J. Jonah Jameson's dislike of Spider-Man's a mystery to me since it started before Spider-Man really became a crime fighter. Jonah being jealous of Spider-Man's heroism has been suggested, but Jonah is honourable in anything not involving Spider-Man. Is he supposed to show the real-world dangers of William Randolph Hearst and yellow journalism? At least the Sam Raimi movies gave a simple, Jonah doesn't like vigilantes reason. Yeah, see, but that works in the film where there are no other vigilantes, but in the comics world Jonah doesn't seem to have a problem with the Fantastic Four or Captain America now you can argue Captain America fought in World War 2 so he's a soldier so he's, he's behind him mm-hmm. and you can argue the Fantastic Four are a non-profit organisation but then being based in New York still attracts Blaster to come out and blow up huge chunks of the Baxter building but doesn't it the
0: FF and Captain America don't have secret identities
1: that's true but the Jonah being jealous of him I didn't actually mind that. I felt that 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 worked moderately well. The revelation that came in about Amazing Spider-Man 10, that he was jealous of the fact that this guy didn't use his powers and abilities to make money like Jonah would do, or sell papers, but just to do good things. Mm. And Jonah couldn't wrap his head around that and was just jealous of him. And ultimately that just became... It just became more of a joke than anything. After you take out the equation, spider slayers and such that were designed to kill him. Yeah. Which you know, I would argue that's not perhaps that honourable, <laughs> but maybe that's me. Number two was Miles Warren's assistant, Anthony Zerba or Anthony Zerbe with a Z. The way you pronounce the name, it sounded like Warren's assistant was the character who actually played, Matthias on the Omega Man. <laughs> um, I, I I don't see any difference in those Zerba, 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 Zerba. You know,
0: Zerbe. You
1: know? Isn't that a, a thing that you cook? I, I don't know. is that something that you eat?
0: It sounds pretty delicious.
1: Oh, Kevin Kevin Zerbe, who played Hercules.
0: Did they eat him?
1: I would not <laughs> like to hazard a guess. I mean, if he crashed on an island full of cannibals, one would imagine his chances weren't <laughs> too good, but I, I can't imagine that Kevin Sorbo has been eaten by cannibals. I would imagine that would have made the news yeah. at some point. <laughs> when the 90s close, how did we get onto the subject <laughs> of Hercules actor eaten by cannibals? <laughs> So there's off the wall I think uh, when the 1990s clone saga started continues Bobby many comics fans on the internet theorised Ben Riley was really Anthony Serber, with his personality suppressed fixing this reveals the high evolutionary planted the journal about the clones being altered people but that means the high evolutionary new Peter Parker is Spider-Man which raises even more questions I like the idea that the, the high evolutionary planted the Jackal's Diary because the high evolutionary is well known as somebody who has so much time on his hands yeah. he can fake an entire diary from this nobody professor who works in New York and plant it and he's just sat there and goes, hey wait till we find that it'll be funny it'll be a real funny joke <laughs> I'm a prankster god <laughs> I'm a prankster high evolutionary <laughs> and all these other high evolutionary buddies are just like what are you? why are you wasting your time Number three, X-Men number one is very similar to the first X-Men story in structure. The X-Men practice their powers and show their personalities while Magneto proposed to steal nuclear warheads. I'm back at the email now professionalism, something for other people, I think. The new story lets readers know these characters have history without getting bogged down in continuity. I liked X-Men one. Thought it was alright. Number four, I liked your look at the first appearance of Bart Allen, a.k.a. Impulse, a.k.a. Kid Flash. I remember in this story Iris was worried Wally would think she was an evil imposter. Fortunately, an actual evil imposter left the Barry Allen biography, Iris wrote, so Wally knew Iris would eventually return from the future. Number five, Alex DeWitt getting killed and the impact on Kyle Rayner is important to the character, but I don't think it's as exploitative or as sexist as it has been called over the years. Also, the idea of loved one murdered by criminals as heroes' motivation to fight crime is so common, superheroes without murdered family members tend to look too goody-goody. Keep up the good work, Bobby. We will endeavour to do just that, Bobby. We will go out in a blaze of glory. Shot down. Yes, that. Shot down in a blaze of glory. Mm-hmm. That Bon Jova? Yes. That John Bonjella, Yes. Is that who that is? Yeah. Excellent, good. We've got time for one more email, but fortunately, this email is from Mr. Mikey Might Be. Michael Bailey himself has emailed into the very show yeah. that his laziness inspired. Yes.
0: <laughs> Written whilst he was on his way to work.
1: <laughs> I don't think he wrote this on the way to work, because this is quite long. Unless he was in a very, very big traffic jam. Could be. Could be. I don't know, is Georgia traffic bad?
0: I, I wouldn't know.
1: I can't, because you watch The Walking Dead, you don't get the impression that traffic's bad. There is, though, yeah. Mm. Not the 90s, part one! He went simplistic for the... Uh, he went simple for the... Not to confuse you. Not to confuse me, as we know. That would have confused me, it if he called it something else. Leyland's Michael. <laughs> do you like that yeah. yeah I know it's been a while since I've last written to you and for that I apologise you have both been putting it in the back of the net. I do like it when Alan Partridge raises his head so much lately that to not comment on those episodes should be a crime I'm glad it's not because I wouldn't do well in prison <laughs> Or I would do well, just not the way I would like. Anyway, there is so much to write to you about that I can barely decide what to focus on. Your original Clone Saga series was very entertaining, highlighted by Andrew's sheer glee in talking about the insanity that was the retcons to that storyline. then there was Seven Soldiers, which did that awful thing that podcasts do and made me want to read something I'd purchased but was putting off because of the wonky relationship I have with Grant Morrison. But it's the 90s that prompted me to write in again, which isn't much of a surprise, really. I realised recently that as much as I do like DC in the 70s and the early 80s, and as much as DC in the last 80s marked my golden age as a collector, the 90s, all 10 years, was where I really came into my own as a fan. I'm sure there are people out there that hear such a thing and immediately say something like, oh, that's too bad, to which I say, shut it, fanboy! I should do like that Pennywise, shouldn't I? Kiss me, fanboy! Yes, there are some tropes in events and series and characters from the 90s that are the very definition of terrible, but there is a greater amount that was awesome. While this is true that I say this from a very biased perspective, as any fan can wax nostalgic about the era that made them a fan, I also say it because it's true. The main problem with the 90s, to my mind, is that people think the entire decade was composed of big guns, big breasts, pouches all over the place, and flashy style over substance storytelling. The thing is, while a lot of that did carry through the entire decade, by 1995 that stuff was on the way out, with the exception of the material Rob Liefeld was putting out. The 90s are a misunderstood decade, maligned by people who don't want to bother putting in the effort to look at the decade as a whole. Again, I'm not saying it was all gold, but it wasn't all a miasma of crap either. Y'all kick things off in fine style and hit me right in the teenage heart with your first three choices. I've been ripping off a joke from the first Wayne Wills movie for years about Spider-Man 1. Much like Wayne's assertion that if you grew up during a certain time, you were issued a copy of Frampton Comes Alive. If you were a comic fan in 1990, especially a teenage one, you were issued a copy of that first issue of Spider-Man. I bought mine while on vacation with my grandparents in the summer of 1990. We were in Texas visiting my aunt and uncle and my older cousin brought me to a baseball card comic shop. That was a common sight in those days. In addition to buying the first three issues of Alan Grant's Demon series, I also purchased Spider-Man number one. I can't honestly say what I thought about it at the time as I don't remember. I probably liked it. When I reread it several years ago, that opinion changed. While I will admit to liking McFarlane's art on Spider-Man, for the most part, the writing left me cold. You could argue that he was just starting out, and McFarlane has made that argument himself in a really good interview that was published. Whilst he was a veteran artist at the time, it was his first writing effort, and thus we might not want to judge it too harshly. On the other hand, it was crap, and that's hard to ignore. Todd can tell me that the constant doom, doom, doom was not a sound effect, but rather a soundtrack to the story all day long, but it was still pretty weak. Then again, Todd has also said that sometimes he draws five pages and puts them on the floor to decide what order they need to go in. (laughs) See, I always thought that was Grant Morrison's writing. (laughs) X-Force and the X-Men number ones will be forever tied together in my head. That was the summer of 1991 and I was about to enter the 10th grade. While I was not a weekly visitor to the comic shop, it was hard to ignore the hype for those issues and I gladly bought them. I mean, X-Force was bagged and had trading cards in them and I was just starting to dip my toe into the non-sports card market. These two issues marked my period as an X-Men reader, which would last well over a year. I'm of the opinion that comics fans around May age, five years each way, all went through an X-Men phase in their comic collecting. For many of us, the X-Men were our gateway into comics, but even a die-hard Superman guy like me spent some time in the X-Mansion. X-Force and X-Men were perfect jumping-on points, and whilst the trading card polybag x force issue and the variant-covered X-Men were a lot of sizzle with very little steak... They could very well be seen as damn silly. At the time, they were awesome. I mean, Layfield's art was always a problem, but Jim Lee drew some kick ass version of the X Men, and there was a lot of action and tough guy dialogue, and it was fun. I can't say it's held up terribly well, because it hasn't. Especially X Force, but god damn did I like it when I was 15. Yeah, I went through an X Men phase. You went through an X Men phase, didn't you? Yeah. Yours was probably the 90s cartoon, though, wasn't it?
0: No, I, I think my
1: X phase was the Claremont run. Was it? Yeah. So you backdated and, and, your X Men for little pocket books. See, mine was the clermont Bone stuff that I was reading in conjunction with Paul Smith, John Jr. But the thing, the weird thing with X Men is when we dropped it, we've never been back, have we? No. I think I've tried once, a tra- once a twice, once or twice. We tried what was it, the Messiah? Complex? Yeah, we tried the Messiah complex, and we both thought that was unintelligible gibberish and
0: then we did Avengers vs X-Men it had changed completely
1: but Avengers vs X-Men worked in and of itself without you actually having to know who the X-Men were it was more of an Avengers and Joss Whedon's
0: X-Men as well well Joss Whedon's X-Men is an epilogue to Grant Morrison's X-Men right
1: see so I never read Grant so you've read Grant Morrison's as well yes so okay but other than that we never went back no (laughs) no Fun fact, the Domino in the first issue of X-Force continues, Mike, is not actually Domino. Down the line, she will be revealed to be a woman impersonating Domino, and the real Domino shows up. If I had a complaint about the episode, it would be your choice of Wannabe as the closing song. Yes, that's very 90s, but it's the latter half of the decade. It didn't feel right with the books you chose. Right Here, Right Now by Jesus Jones or Losing My Religion by R.E.M. felt more contemporary with those books. If you notice the quotes around the word complaint, you will hopefully realise that I'm not actually complaining. Um, well, I like I said this last week when Chris complained, in quotes, that I played Wannabe at yeah. the end of it. The music wasn't supposed to reflect a particular era in the way that the comics they it were was picked. It. The music was just from the 90s. And like I said last week, if there is a song that defines the 90s better than Wannabe and Jerry Halliwell in a Union Jack dress, then I don't know what it is. And I make no apologies for liking Wannabe. Like I said last time, you can like or dislike the Spice Girls, but it is a perfect slice of pure pop. And there's nothing wrong with that. Okay. You don't like Wannabe, do you? No. How can you not like it? I love that hook. I love there's that there's a
0: zebra head cover, and that's as much as I can... Is there a zebra head, head cover of Wannabe? There's, the, it's, there's an album called Panty Raid, where they cover women songs
1: <laughs> what else did they cover do they cover Hit Me Baby One More Time yes I'm you ought to know do they cover Girlfriend by Avril Ravine yeah hey 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 I could be your girlfriend that's actually my favourite song on the track is it on the album even. even is it better than the Avril Ravine one it is, what is the, why do I keep calling it Avril Ravine I, I don't know should she not be Avril I'm now going out with the guy from um, Nickelback
0: she has been no they're divorced now
1: is she divorced from him now? Are
0: they getting a divorce? As yeah? well as being divorced from some 41 bloke. That was 10 years ago, dude.
1: How can it be <laughs> 10 years ago? She's clearly still only 23. <laughs> anyway, uh, Mike wraps up with, love the show, Mikey Mike B. Thanks for giving me the credit for the term nothing but the 90s. I have few regrets in podcasting, but one of them is not following up on that idea. Glad you guys are doing this. Well, as long as you don't charge us, yes, we are happy uh, to take your title and do something with it. I'm not saying we did anything good with it, but we did something with it, and
0: that's something. It's better than nothing. It is. Unless what you did was really bad, you should have just left it. Yeah,
1: yeah. I'll let them be the judge of that. Okay. You never know, do you? Anyway, I will call it a day, though, with the E-Mither for tonight, and uh, we'll be right back after this commercial break for a show of some description, probably pop culture affidavit, because that's now on 23freaks.com, and it's great. I like pop culture affidavit. And um, we'll be right back with Ed Brubaker and Steve Epting's Velvet. Two True Freaks just got a little more random. Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture, is now on the Two True Freaks Network. Every episode is something different. Movies, comics, television, music. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, the sworn testimony of a dork, at two twotruefreaks.com and popcultureaffidavit.com. Velvet started life with a simple premise, which, let's be honest, most good material does. What if, mused writer Ed Brubaker, Miss Moneypenny was framed for James Bond's murder? Velvet, as with the best titles, has two meanings. For one, it's the name of the central protagonist of the series, Velvet Templeton. A 40-something secretary with a far murkier background than one would think a lowly secretary, even one for MI6, would have. For another, Velvet is a soft, silky material normally associated with nobility. The idea came to Brubaker back when he was working on Captain America for Marvel. Always a fan of the 50s and 60s era spy novels. He noticed that all those spies, whether British intelligence or Russian secret service, were men. What were the women up to? Brubaker's research led into an episode of the 70s British TV show The Sandbaggers, where the head of MI6 was looking for a new secretary, and it dawned on Brubaker that the secretary the head of one of the biggest spy organisations in the world would have to be just as knowledgeable about what was happening as he was, yet she would be viewed primarily to the world at large as a simple secretary. His research led him to stories primarily about Russian and British female spies, really Americans, who were part of actions under the Official Secrets Act, and as such were unable to tell their side of the story. These women, however, who were codebreakers in World War II, were simply expected to go back to be boring housewives at the end of the war, despite being integral to the war effort. He even found stories of a female British spy who was tasked with seducing a friend of FDR into influencing the USA to get involved in World War II. And with this knowledge, plus a lifetime of pulp reading and an uncle that was in the CIA and a father who was naval intelligence, Brubaker originally conceived of Velvet as a TV show. The show, he decided, needed to be set in the Cold War of the 1970s. Velvet, now working as a secretary, would be in her early 40s, and no one would know of her past except a very few high-up officials in MI6. As pitched, it went well, but Brubaker was suddenly sideswiped when executives suddenly wanted Velvet de-aged by about 20 years and changed to a new recruit being handled by a handsome, slightly older agent. Brubaker was doubly shocked to learn that these edicts came not from the men in the industry, but from the female executives themselves who were 40-something and had succeeded in their chosen profession. Brubaker pointed out that that show had been done and was called Alias and promptly walked away from the deal. I'd still like to see this TV show with Lena Headey in the title role. Somebody else suggested Claudia Black, but I saw Lena Headey. I don't know. Claudia from Farscape. Okay. Lena Headey's in Game of Thrones. Okay. That doesn't help you, does it? Slightly. The she's Farscape in, one, yeah. She's in 300. Oh. She's okay. in the Judge Dredd movie. Okay. Lena Headey. I think she'd make a good Velvet Templeton. For five years, the project remained on the back burner as Brubaker did more reading. After his successful tenure on Captain America was up, he decided to pitch Velvet as a comic to Image, who had become the home for daring, innovative and exciting creator-owned concepts in recent years. He knew the look of the comic would be old pulp covers of the paperback novels of the 70s or spy movies of the 60s, and as such, he tapped Steve Epting as his collaborator. With the story refined and the creative team in place, Velvet No. 1 was released on October twenty third, 2013, with the opening arc running for five issues. The cover for Issue 1 is simply superb. Velvet Templeton stands in a medium close-up, a streak of grey in her hair, with a Luger pistol in her hand. The logo, Velvet, is across the middle, and underneath there are handsome men with Walther PPKs, glamorous women, explosions, cars leaping through the air, a sniper sight, a balding bearded man and exotic locales, all spelling out that this is a spy espionage tale of 60s, 70s vintage. In the tradition of Robert McGinnis's old Bond movie posters, it's a glorious cover, of a kind that they really don't make any and one of Steve Epting's best pieces of work. What did you think of it?
0: I like it. It is great, isn't it? I wouldn't say it hits the goal of being like pulpy covers.
1: Why not? I do you not think that? Because she's the... very
0: 60s Bond, though. Yeah, but the Fury Max covers, yeah, Bob-on. I like them. They're, they're good Cold War, comic-y type covers.
1: I think this is more 70s pulp paperbacks. This is more Mac Bolan. Yeah. The Executioner and um, Remo Williams, the Destroyer. It's more in that kind of vibe. Looking at the guys, though, that one, the one at the bottom looks like a very young Robert Lansing. So I don't know whether he used him as reference. And the bearded guy, he reminds me of someone as well.
0: He reminds me of someone from Captain America.
1: He doesn't, Yeah, he reminds me of someone, what was his name? He, he was in all the Doctor in the House movies. Robert James Robertson Justice. You have no idea what I'm talking about. No. that's James Robertson Justice. Okay, that's who that looks. I'll like. have to take you off for it. You'll have to take my word for it. Or I'll use this newfangled thing called Google. Okay. <laughs> One of the things that's worth noting about image books and Marvel have gone down this route as well, isn't there? There is no difference in the paper stock in the covers and the interior anymore. Mm. Which I, did you like that?
0: I'm not sure.
1: Uh, that's I exactly. Think I do, I'm not. Do you? Because I'm not sure.
0: ...than what DC are doing with the card covers? So DC Comics actually still feel like they have covers, though. Some of them do, but they're all glossy and they smudge easily.
1: See these? So, do you not think these crinkle easier?
0: I do I, I like them like this, but as evidenced with issue one, they rip easily.
1: Yes. Yes. My issue one's ripped for some reason maybe the cat got a hold of her she's done that before hasn't she with this issue yeah she massacred an issue of Spider-Man once hasn't she the mm-hmm. cat wrestled with it to be fair your mum replaced it for me yeah she was very nice of her but you know this one was double sized was it double sized it was l- longer yeah it was £3.50 instead of $2.99 so the most £3.50 instead of $2.00 $3.50 <laughs> sorry mixing up the currencies so. there Before the Living End Part 1 starts off in Paris, 1973. Jefferson Keller, ex-operative number 14, one of the men that doesn't exist, is shot dead after working a mission for ARC-7, a top-secret spy organisation based out of London. Immediately briefed, Director Manning is informed by the investigative team led by ex-operative 33 that Keller's escape route was compromised. The only explanation as to how Keller could have been taken out at such close range without warning. Manning orders a full investigation. Everyone, even remotely connected to the mission, is suspect. Manning's secretary, Velvet Templeton, keeps a close eye on the case files, supplying Manning with the information he needs, but it's clear to Templeton that the internal investigation run by an agent called Roberts is getting nowhere. The secretarial pool is awash with running mascara as they mourn Keller, a notorious flirt. Even Templeton enjoyed his advances more than once, and as she goes over page after page of files and reports, she starts to notice discrepancies such as a missing day. However, she puts these on the back burner when Manning announces that the external investigation ran by Colt has allegedly unearthed the assassin. An old agent, Frank Lancaster, was found in Paris on a fake passport. His bank accounts have been cleaned out, shoveled to a Swiss account, and he disappeared an hour after the shooting. Roberts is dispatched to locate him, but Templeton refuses to believe Lancaster did this. Templeton admired Lancaster when he was the top agent, but he'd committed the cardinal sin not dying in the field. Pensioned off, Templeton had seen better men than Lancaster turn, but she still couldn't accept that he'd gone rogue. Searching a number of safe houses only she and Lancaster knew about, Templeton finds him dead. At that moment, Roberts arrives and Templeton realises Lancaster isn't the only one being framed. Roberts dismisses her as a mere secretary and refuses to listen to her pleas. He doesn't know who she is, or was. He has no clue what's happening when Templeton destroys his team in seconds and leaps out of a five-storey window. It was good, this. I like way We would be covering it if we didn't think it was good, would we? Uh, Steve Epting's out. I thought it was absolutely gorgeous in, uh, in this issue, whether it was showing the the nighttime landscape of Paris or the seedy side of espionage. It's gorgeous. Epting's very unusual style here, in that it's, it's very photo-referenced. But unlike a lot of photo-referenced artists, it's not stiff or boring. If I have a complaint, it's that Velvet Templeton looks quite a bit older on the cover ...than in the actual issue. Yeah. But that's a mind niggle. I wouldn't have put it
0: I, I, I think Epton's eye is really stiff, though. Do you? Like, really stiff. Why? He's... To me, he's very similar to John Cassidy. John Cassidy... He's very, very good.
1: He's very, very stiff. See, now, that's, that's weird, because I think John Cassidy's technically very proficient, but oh, so very boring. Yeah. And I don't find Epting's boring... I don't find it that stiff. It does, I will give you, it reads like one of those old photo novels. Yeah. Rather than a comic book. I think, and I had this with him as
0: an artist on Captain America as well. Yeah. It's very, very dull, very, very boring and very, very stiff, but it really suits Captain America in this. Mm. It's, it's a
1: story where you want art uh, that's really dull, stiff and dark. See, I think, he suits this more than Captain America. I mean, I've only read his Captain America run once, and I keep meaning to dig it all out and reread it again. Because yeah. after Winter Soldier came out, I did reread the Winter Soldier for the first 10 issues yeah. of Captain America, and I loved them. But I agree with what you're saying about Epton in Captain America. The fight scenes are a little bit. There's, there's no dynamism to them. Yeah. Man, that word makes sense. You know what I mean? I'm tired. <laughs> you know what I mean yeah yeah, yeah they are very post. they're not dynamic yeah they're not dynamic thank yeah. you very much it worked in this yeah because it's one of the, the the fight scenes that happen in this are very quick and therefore the quick photo <coughs> shots work very well I thought mm-hmm. I love I love this I think acting's working this is really really good now, I like it but I
0: think it's because it suits it
1: yeah whilst acknowledging that what you're saying is valid hmm it, now that you say that, it does remind me of John Cassaday, and like that's that's why it's interesting that you've said that because I don't actually like John Cassaday, do I? No. I, I can appreciate Cassidy's work, Cassaday's work, that it's technically brilliant, mm. but I find it just very very boring. I'm really not looking forward to him being on the new Star Wars comic. Really? It is like yeah, the, the all the characters will look like the actors, and um, his ships will look great. And his ships will look fantastic. But I'm not entirely convinced that his sequential storytelling will be any more interesting than it was in Planetary. Hmm. I mean, it didn't hinder Planetary because Planetary was so well written. Yeah. But I still thought it was pretty boring to look at. I know I'm in the minority though, lovely listener. I know that most people think John Cassidy is the bee's knees.
0: No, I I think he's really stiff, but I really like him. All right,
1: no, that's that's fair enough.
0: I do like how, with this being James Bond-esque, of course, there's an Aston
1: Martin. Yeah, I, I love that, that his car is an Aston Martin. This entire opening plays with audience expectations of what we know from spy and espionage fiction doesn't oh, yeah. it? it's it's the pre-credit sequence to a James Bond movie in which a cool super spy in a tux and driving an Aston Martin completes a super secret mission with ruthless efficiency however just before we go to the opening credit sequence by Maurice binder that has lots of naked women in it Bond gets shot in the face and killed.
0: So, essentially, it's the opening to from Russia with Love.
1: Yeah, essentially, yeah. where Bond gets killed, doesn't he? But we find out it's somebody in a mask. Yeah. And it's now actually James Bond. And his death seems actually quite brutal, because it's a shotgun to the face.
0: Yeah, yeah. So there's not a
1: lot of his face left by the end of it. But then, you got a two-page spread that in the movies would have been the opening credits. Doom, 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 doom. Doom, 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 doom. I mean, I really, a right. show with love, or something like that.
0: Yeah, I really like that. The two-page
1: opening credit splash. Yeah, she does look about 40, though. That's what I mean to you. On the cover, and on that two-page spread, which is just, it's just a shot of Velvet in black and white, it's gorgeously drawn. Hmm. Velvet in black and white, pointing a gun. It's very Bond... Um, the, the gun barrel sequence at the beginning of all the Bond films, isn't it? That's what it's evoking. Yeah. And she looks 40. She looks her age. She looks very good but she looks like she's 40 years old. Mm. And then when you turn the page and she's in bed, she looks a good 10 years younger than that. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a mind... Now, this isn't a Glenn Fabry situation, where Glenn Fabry's drawing the covers and Steve Dillon's drawing the interior, so there's a discrepancy between what Tulip looks like in Preacher. It's the same guy. Mm. So it seems a little bit strange that he should draw her as looking a little bit younger in the actual comic but yeah the opening is brilliant it's very Bond very 60s Bond
0: it's written to be a TV show as well
1: and that as well I mean I don't know how much of this he's reworked for the comics medium he he, he can't have just slapped the TV scripts into comics because that wouldn't work Hmm. he must have rewritten it to do that but yeah that was obviously the opening credit sequence or pre-credit sequence Hmm. and it's playing with the idea that you know all the iconography of the James Bond films the Tux. The Aston Martin, the, the nighttime time loca- exotic location, which is Paris. He's at a party, so everyone's swaggering and well-dressed. And the landscape shots is the Eiffel Tower and, and all of that. So it's playing with the idea that the audience knows what all of this is.
0: And then we get a Jag on the next page.
1: Yes, she does, don't she? Yeah, Velvet drives a Jag, because it was the early 70s. It's a Jag X12 XKE convertible clever got that yeah. uh, she's very Emma Peel as well then I think is worth noting
0: yeah I kind of got that an Avengers
1: vibe yeah. from it like Diana Rigg in 1968 uh, Brubaker also employs the same kind of hard boiled narration of the detective novels using the comics technique of telling a completely different but complementary story to the artwork, and it works. Mm. It fits really, really well. It makes sure you're paying attention to the art and the dialogue. Despite it being an espionage spy tale, Velvet is engaged in some manner of detective work as she tries to piece together the specifics of Keller's murder, and it follows that kind of genre in more traditional ways as well. Velvet is a loner with a murky past. She has a code that may or may not be legal, but certainly is moral. She'll not give up on a case, nor will she bend her principles, which is very detective noir. There are hints of corruption in the organisation she works for, and Brubacker is mixing these hard-boiled fiction elements in with the super-spy genre we're familiar with, of suave secret agents, exotic locations, glamorous men and women in equally glamorous clothing, and, of course, a bottle of chilled 45 Rothschild. Which he has later on. Brubaker may be more interested in the seedier side of being a spy, the John LeCary spy fiction. But this is pure James Bond with a twist. The narration is used to fill in backstory and add character. We learn Velvet was more than just a secretary once and that she has no problem taking advantage of the perks of the job, such as an office fling with, uh, with a smooth spy. And it's pointed out she's had a relationship with both Keller and Frank Lancaster. So she was quite happy to, to take advantage of the, the perks of the job. We also learn ARC-7 is one of those organisations that doesn't exist. And even the intel community isn't aware of them. They were set up on the back of the Allied Espionage Group in World War II. And the funding is extensive, but is hidden completely. And every operation is a black op. None of that is in the dialogue. Mm. That's all in Velvet Templeton's narration. It's a good way of getting all that plot exposition out of the way, isn't it? Yeah. That she's based. It does beg the question of who she's telling this story to. Is she writing this down as a diary? Is this an after the fact discussion? Are we going to find out that this is her explaining all this in an interrogation after she's cleared herself?
0: I. That oh. was, that's
1: always my, one of my problems with the hard-boiled narration in comics that Jeff Loeb and Frat Miller did. Who are they talking to?
0: But who are they talking to in the novels?
1: It's a good question.
0: Take Max Payne, for example. Who's, Who's he talking, he talking to?
1: to? He's talking to us. Well, maybe she's talking to us. Yeah, okay. So it's just an audience thing. Alright. As befits a story set in the early 1970s, Velvet is largely dismissed as a mere woman. By every sexist pig in this comic, didn't mm. she? Only director Manning knows who she really is. Yep. And only he treats her with any respect. Even though she's got access to everything he has access to. Hmm. Which is something I've never really given any thought to. If you were going to kidnap somebody who knows everything, you'd kidnap Miss Moneypenny, wouldn't you? Oh, uh, yeah. She doesn't have a guard. Yeah. She doesn't go home in an armoured car every night. But nobody ever seems to think of that.
0: I like the flashback where you, don't, where you see she's not got a her streak. I like that her streak because you find out more about it in a later issue. Yes,
1: that she's got the great streak at the front of her. But in the flashbacks, yeah, she obviously she doesn't have it because she's not going grey yet. Because
0: because something makes her change her hairstyle to be a different person, to yeah. move on from something that happened.
1: Yes. It's all very good. It's very well plotted. In a flashback to New York of 1968, Keller's car of choice is a Ford Mustang, complete with all the usual refinements, as uh, as Q would say. There's a amusing bit where Velvet goes to light her... Um, her wacky-backy and uh, Keller panics and says that's oh, not the lighter yeah Visions are her in the eject button
0: I like how the last panel is pressed the one next to the lighter and nothing happens but you know something happens yeah and just
1: hold on but yeah. we don't actually see what follows that which was presumably just the car zooming away from the police chase could be see that's that's all very um, diamonds are forever yeah, being chased by the police. In, I mean, it's in Las Vegas in that film, not New York. But it's, it's not very
0: good of a super spy to be chased by the police.
1: Well, it's, 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 is he acknowledging the, the the James Bond thing, the world's most famous secret agent,
0: hmm. which
1: is one of the biggest oxymorons in fiction? Yeah, he's not a very good secret agent if Everyone everybody knows who he is. <laughs> or yeah. the other flip side of that, he's the best. Because everybody knows who he is, and he doesn't care. Yeah, because he's that good. So, so it works both ways.
0: The TV show Archer isn't taking too much of piss out of it. No,
1: well, yes, only a little. <laughs> only a little bit. <laughs> Brubaker expands on Jeff Lancaster quite economically in the story. We never even see him, apart from in a flashback series sequence. Sorry to his and Velvet's breakup, and he doesn't speak we don't get any dialogue from him but we know him we know he's an agent who was the best but he was no saint and we know that not being killed and being pensioned off is the worst thing that could have happened to him the novel Casino Royale by Ian Fleming makes a big deal out of spies that outlive their usefulness in fact that's the the point of the book Bond is at the end of his career in Casino Royale as Mm. opposed to the film where it's at the beginning in the novel, he's, been, he's at the point where he's going to be pensioned off because he's not been killed. Yeah, And he's like, is this all I'm left with now? A cushy desk job? Hmm. And he's I don't want to do it. I don't want this to be my future. And Brubaker's playing with the same thing. Velvet investigating Lancaster's safe house at exactly the same time that Roberts gets there is a massive coincidence. But Velvet points out that, A, the agency shouldn't even know about these, so the fact they do... Yeah. is obviously impl- implying a setup, and two she is also being framed so it's not quite as big of a coincidence as you think it is mm. I mean it still works for the story because it's a dramatic moment it's a great bit as well when Roberts calls a secretary with the contempt dripping from his mouth and Velvet has a brief few seconds where she pauses realises that talking to him ain't getting her anywhere and then just kicks the ass of everyone yeah which is quite cool. I like that she goes for the, um, the trek you when she hits that guy in the neck.
0: Did you learn that today?
1: I know I learned it a couple of months ago. <laughs> so, that's quite good. I'll get into that later. Okay. It was only at the end of the 19th century that the spy genre started to depict espionage agents as patriots doing a dirty job. And even then, only due to the British army... Enforcing the Empire in various small wars around the globe. Spies are often depicted as men who have no lives, no homes, and are engaged in the kind of work that others would see as unsavoury but necessary, and this rogue male spy archetype is turned on its head for velvet. Too often the women in these fictions are the loyal secretary who stay at home pining for the man to return, the femme fatale, or the disposable object of affection. So it's nice to get someone who could be Black Widow in a few years' time. The setting's interesting, largely due to Brubaker wanting to get rid of the mobile phone, but the 60s and 70s aren't that long ago, and are therefore immediately recognisable to us, despite the many technological advancements made since. Excellent beginning, I thought. What did you think?
0: I really liked it. I told you you would, didn't I? I like a lot of Cold War thrillers, though.
1: Yeah, Cold War, spy, espionage, genre stuff, detective fiction. It's all in the same wheelhouse. Yeah. And it's always, it's pretty cool. I enjoyed this a great deal, Mm. um, which is why we picked it to cover it. I thought it was a very nice counterpoint to the image comics of last week. Yeah. That we covered. The image has finally become what it wanted to be hasn't it Mm -hmm. so I thought that was quite interesting Uh, it has a text page by Ed Brubaker which is great and then a history of spy fiction throughout the Cold War which is a four page text piece by Jess Nevins and then a couple of adverts um, Kelly Sue DeConnick is that her name yeah and Emma Rios is Pretty Deadly And um, an advert for all of Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips' stuff, which is now all available through Image, apparently. Including Incognito and Criminal. Have they now been repurposed by Image? Yeah. Because they were Marvel books, weren't
0: they?
1: Yeah. Icon. Yeah, Icon. So they've moved over. And Sex Criminals gets an ad, as does Black Science by Rick Remender. Which I've never read, but I I presume it's uh, very entertaining. Does
0: every Brubaker issue have a text piece in it? D- does he refuse to. No, there's
1: it? no more, Yeah.
0: Oh, is there not? Nope. Alright, oh, okay. I was going to say, does he refuse to write anything unless it's got an essay at the
1: back? No, he does put an essay at the back of Fatal and he did it with the uh, criminal. Yeah. But he doesn't republish them in the trade paperbacks.
0: Right. Oh, it's to Essentially, it's to a, the comics.
1: Uh, yeah, it's a reward for people that buy the comics. When he doesn't have a text piece at the back, he has a four or five page letters page. Yeah. So, he does try and give us value for money in his comic, mm. which is quite nice of him. Uh, issue 2 has a cover in which a Chevy Chevelle is being chased by two Sedan's guns firing out of the windows. Again, this is below the title and above Velvet Templeton runs for her life. The car chase doesn't take place in America and therefore does not feature a Chevy Chevelle. Yeah. <laughs> but other than that... It's a pretty good cover. One does wonder why he drew such an obvious American car chase on the cover of an issue that doesn't set foot on American soil at any point. Well, it's just pretty pointless anyway. There is a car chase in the yeah. issue. The other issue had her on
0: top like it does on most of them and it had a large montage. This has got a pretty useless and pointless montage that's so small it has no reason to be though.
1: Do you get the impression had just told Eptin, right, yeah, the second issue has a car chase in it? Yeah, and Velvet on the Run, and that's what he came up with. Yeah, because, like I say the car—they're clearly American cars on an American highway. The car chase uh, has all lots of small cars in London. In London, so <laughs> it's completely unrepresentative of the story in hand. Velvet falls and Roberts is already calling for ground support, which being a by-the-book kind of guy he has on standby. Velvet activates her stealth suit and glides, albeit uncomfortably, through an adjoining window. She flees with Roberts' men in hot pursuit. Stealing a car, Velvet weaves through the traffic, but Roberts, in a pursuing car, manages to blow out her tyres. Velvet leaps from the car onto a motorcycle as her car crashes into Roberts. She lets the cyclist off and burns rubber. Roberts tells Manning and demands to know who the hell Velvet Templeton is, as she sure as hell he's no secretary. Manning gives Roberts a big fat file of classified documents, codenamed Valentine, from East Berlin in 1949, Monaco in 1951, Northern Italy in 1953, French Tunisia in 1955 and Prague in 1956. Roberts asks why that mission was her last and Manning states that the information is above his pay grade. Roberts is dismissed and sub-director Simonson points out it's possible Velvet was turned in Prague, but Manning refuses to accept it. Velvet, however, has not stopped. The only way somebody could be setting her up is if they were aware of her previous missions, which means an inside job. Getting out of England will be difficult, but thanks to an old friend, not impossible. Burke, said old friend and smuggler, can get her where she needs to go. First half of the comic is Velvet escaping... Velvet is Velvet escaping from her fate that we left off at the end of last issue. And it's, I thought this was expertly paced and quite exquisitely drawn. I actually found this, this, um, this action sequence to be quite well done by Eptin. The constant rain is glistening off the pavements and gives the road a very slick feel. And the colouring manages to give... London a, a vibrant, glorious look. So we need to give a shout out to Elizabeth Bruett Swesa, who is the colorist. Um I just, I thought that the opening. I mean, it's the first half of the book is just the chase scene. So I already thought it, it had moments that were better than the Captain America action sequences. Yeah. Did you not like that either, art-wise?
0: Or do you think it, it does no, work I, for this book? I did like it because it works, but I still think it's stiff. Right. Uh, I like the stealth suit though. How it has wings, yeah, but because it's new, she doesn't know how to use she it. She doesn't
1: know how it works. So, it ba- so basically she's on a wing in a prayer, and she manages to glide just enough to get over the road and into a window across the way. Yeah. Um, and I do like they set that up at the end of last issue.
0: Because
1: mm. Roberts actually says, wait a minute, she's wearing that." Yeah. So he set up, it isn't just completely like a Batman cliffhanger. Although I, I do want to know
0: where the wings come and go. From in the skin-tight stealth suit.
1: Yeah, because they're attached to her knee. Well, she presses a button, implying that it comes out of the suit, but then they just they do just disappear when she crashes. They're like Spider-Man's underarm webbing. Okay. They're basically there when the artist wants <laughs> it to be, and it's it's as simple as that. Codename Valentine. I will put money on that being the title of an arc at somewhere down the line. Yeah. When we find out all about our backstory. That would have been the name of the novel. You reckon? Yeah novel that this would have been yes or maybe that would have been the name of the TV show because I agree, that's a better title than Velvet yeah I think I think Codename Valentine's actually a pretty cool title it suits the genre though. it does you're absolutely right it does Manning backs Velvet Simonson doesn't it's clear Manning isn't behind this unless Brubaker's going for a double bluff mm. And he even blames Roberts for being some gung-ho with the guns and not taking a more stealthy approach. So I'm hoping it's not him. Yeah. I think it'd be a little bit obvious for it to be M, mm. wouldn't it? It'd be like the first Mission Impossible movie, where the bad guy is Jim Phelps. And on the one hand, you're like, yeah, okay, it's a neat twist. But the fact that you watched the series for ten years and it was Jim Phelps every week, you're like, he wouldn't betray IMF. Yeah. I mean, I know he's played by John Voight now. Who you know, would betray them. But I didn't buy it, so I do hope that it isn't M. I think it
0: uh, I think it
1: was M. You think it's M? Yeah. You think it's Manning? Yeah. Do you think it's a coincidence that his surname is Manning? Yeah. yeah Playing yeah. off Skyfall's line. I always thought M was just a, a title. I didn't know it stood for and then she cuts him off. Yeah. So do you think it's a coincidence that his name's Manning?
0: Probably.
1: Because not. in Skyfall the guy who replaces Judy Dench, his surname begins with an M. Yeah. So that kind of telegraphs what's going to happen if you're paying attention to the movie. But you know, uh, the two-page splash where we catch up on Velvet is past. I thought it was great. Yeah. We basically just get Roberts leafing through the books, and we get a title and a country and a year, and then a shot of Velvet doing spy stuff. Particularly fond of the one where she's careening off a cliff in a car, firing guns at us. Yeah. I wonder how she got out of that one. She probably had a stealth suit on. Probably. That
0: that <laughs> bit did remind me of.
1: yeah I like that because I thought he could have wasted this could have been an extended flashback yeah and he gets rid of it in the space of what two pages he could uh, do story arcs on them yeah at some point I would imagine he's going to fill in all these yeah and that's why I reckon that art will be called (laughs) Coordinate Valentine is my thinking Uh, Burke lives in a boat which is anchored offshore which means Velvet has to swim to him I liked Burke yeah I liked him a great deal I thought he was very funny (laughs) Reading the second issue, there's a very Burn Notice vibe. That of an honourable spy loyal to their respective countries being forced out by unknowns. Velvet does have a lot of Michael Weston in her, plus a dab of Sydney Bristow and even a little bit Miss Moneypenny as re-envisioned in Skyfall. But she's pretty much unique in this time frame, something I'm sure also played a part in making this a period piece, not just wanting to not have mobile phones which was his reason that he gave in the text piece at the end contemporaneous I can only really think of Emma Peel and Kathy Gale Mm. from the Avengers as being this kind I mean there's Honor Blackman's character in Goldfinger but she's not a spy is she? She's the bad guy Pussy Galore or she's working for the bad guy so alright the opening's very action packed but it made this issue feel like a very quick read. Epting's scene transitions are impeccable, though. Are impeccable, though, As were the quick flashes where Velvet's training all comes back to her and she flees. There's a large carrot draped in front of the reader as Brubaker expertly doles out the information slowly on Velvet and what Manning and Simonson knew. See, the problem when you cover something like this, I say, what do you think of that one? And as each individual issue, you kind of, yeah, it was good, yeah, it was good. It was only yeah. really when you read the whole thing, innit? you can really judge on whether it was successful or not. But I'll ask you anyway.
0: I probably like this one less than the first one.
1: Did you? Well, yeah. this was half action. Yeah. You know, In a movie, that's a five-minute action scene. But in the comic, it was half of the pages was the action, the opening action beat.
0: It, it, I did like the action changes, though. Like, it went from getting out of a bad situation to a tense, stealthy situation mm. to a car chase. To a
1: car chase, to a motorbike chase, to a then having to go undercover.
0: Yeah, yeah, so to a motorbike chase where they don't tell you what happened to the person who owned the bike.
1: No, well, the reason I mentioned burn notice, thats this issue was the, the pre-credit sequence of burn notice. Yeah. He's been burned in the middle of an op, and he had to get out of it, didn't he? Hmm. And that was the same thing. He had to fight his way out of the room, he jumped out of the building, he stole a motorcycle. Yeah. He, he had to then sneak out the Contra. So it is... This Someone, one. someone brings up burn notice in the letters page. Do they? In yeah. this letters page. Right. Yeah, because this one doesn't have a text piece, so it does have umpteen pages of letters. Obviously, the letters page ended up being called Velvet Underground, Uh, because that's pretty straightforward. And, oh yeah, Burn Notice, a a letter from Bubba Beasley, which is a great name, in Georgia, uh, who references Burn Notice. Brubaker doesn't say if he's ever watched Burn Notice. Probably did. I presume so, given that he seems to watch everything of that The adverts are all pretty much the same, aren't they? Yeah. Brubaker's stuff and Kelly Sue DeConnick. Is he going out with Kelly Sue DeConnick? No. Matt Fraction is. Is he? Yes. Right, okay. I thought maybe he was plugging her boots because it was his missus or something. No, no. no. Right. It's Matt Fraction's. Okay. Issue 3's cover follows the same layout, but on this one Velvet is upside down with a suppressed weapon whilst underneath the title she's borrowed Emma Peel's suit and is kicking ass in what looks like the grounds of a mansion or a castle... Or the prison she sneaks into. Or the prison that she sneaks into in the issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good point. Fair enough. In Vienna, Burke and Velvet following Keller's footsteps to find out where he was on that missing day. Keller was to stop an arms deal in Belgrade. And, of course, the mission involves seducing the trophy wife of a Yugoslavian general, Marina Stepanov. You like that, name? With Burke's help, Velvet crashes a party, but the general is not with Mrs Stepanov. Being publicly seen without his wife is not a good sign. Either she's dead, which Velvet would have heard about, or he's turned his wife over for treason after the arms deal went south. Velvet seduces the ministry offers as assistant and easily locates what she needs. Marina is in prison. Velvet breaks in thanks to a Burke-created diversionary explosion and locates Marina now severely beaten and missing an eye. Velvet manages to get her out, but Burke points out she's damaged goods, and she'll get nothing useful out of her. Velvet tells Marina she's a friend of Mark Falcon, Keller's alias, and Marina agrees to help if she gets to see her son one last time. Velvet agrees, even though she knows that that's a bad idea. General Stepanov is in one of the nicer hotels in the city and Marina gets her and Velvet in without too much trouble. Outside the door, Marina tells Velvet that she got pregnant after Falcon was here but her husband has been impotent for years. That's what gave her away. She enters the room as it dawns on Velvet that she doesn't have a son but she's too late as General Stepanov knifes Marina. Velvet shoots the general dead and Marina, as she bleeds out, as to tell Velvet anything she needs to know. Uh, it's the middle chapter of the story, so traditionally things don't tend to move that quickly. But thankfully, Brubaker avoids that pitfall by filling in the gaps on Keller's mission halfway through. Which was a nice flashback, would not I thought that was quite good.
0: I, I noticed in the opening bit, Yeah,
1: there's,
0: there is the alias 72 hours earlier thing. Yes. But yes. also, I thought Velvet is is kind of really bad at her job if she's spotted Every single time <laughs> she sneaks into somewhere,
1: she's still a little rusty. Okay, she's not spotted when she breaks in the jail. Oh, yeah, she is, isn't. She, yeah, yeah, and she's spotted here in Vienna. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's Burke who saves the day. I mean, the opening monologue's great because we get a pre credit sequence again about spies being terrible at following rules but great at following orders. Culminating at the Revelation, Velvet's breaking into prison. Yeah, but you're right, she keeps getting caught. Yeah. I know, but if she doesn't get caught, there's no action.
0: So... I, so she's being really bad at her job for the sake of For the, of the sake story. of us,
1: yeah. Right. I mean, obviously she has to be really good at her job to get out of this. Yeah. But if she was really, really good at her job, she wouldn't get into him in the first place, is what you're saying. Yeah. All right. All right, I can go with that. Burke's given a little bit more shade in. He's a smuggler whose specialty is making things and people disappear and then reappear in other countries. He's a pragmatist. After shooting the two men who've cornered them in Vienna, Velvet says only one of them had a gun. That was foolish of him, he replies. Yeah. I mean, I thought that was the funniest line in the book. You know if you're gonna do this come armed yeah if you don't you own yourself to blame I
0: think that got overshadowed by the other funny moment in this issue which was which was what I was giggling at when you were on about um, him going to seduce the trophy wife
1: oh right Velvet being prepared to seduce the big slightly porky ministry officer was interesting is that what you were laughing at
0: no I was laughing at the flashback oh right where he seduces her I laughed out loud on that one
1: well, that he's not even took her somewhere private; he's just nailing her in the hallway. He's not nailing her, though. Well, so how did she get pregnant then? His, I'm assuming in that panel, his hands up her skirt. Yes, it is, but I'm presuming they must have ended up somewhere else later. Oh
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought that that is more of the Brubaker Phillips humour, right? Well, it said Brubaker, so I guess. I guess it's it. It just felt thing. weird to have that kind of humour
1: in this in, in a
0: book that's been really, really dark and serious so far.
1: Oh, I don't think it's been without its humor, but it's very it's quite black humor, yeah, like the line that Burke has the yeah. only one of them was armed. that's not my problem, yeah I thought that was I thought that was quite funny um Velvet has to seduce him, and she's prepared to seduce the fat guy until um a much better option comes along. With his assistant, who's who's quite good looking, James Bond seduces any number of women to get his job done. But every single one of them's gorgeous. Yeah, we've never seen him have to sleep with someone he finds physically repulsive, have we? Mm. In for for Queen and Country.
0: Maybe that's what they're getting at here. Yeah.
1: yeah, well, because she was prepared to do it, she was prepared to do the Ministry officer, yeah, if she had to. But then his assistant was far more appealing. I mean, if she's going to have to do it, she may as well enjoy it. Yeah. I suppose is what she was saying.
0: I quite like what they started doing where they have they tell you the name of them in the circle, so they kind of do the um, David Ager Sorrentino thing that's going around in Hot Guy and Arrow.
1: Oh yeah. Well it's also um, that's very leverage.
0: Yeah but they'll start doing it more and more.
1: Yeah as they go along like when she's casing the joint yeah. and then underneath you'll have the name of the person that she spotted. Yeah. Yeah um, they do that a lot in leverage.
0: They'll do it in a later issue where it's all kind of blurry and jagged. Mm-hmm. And it's just colours, except what's in the panel. Right? Except that's, what she's looking at. That's very definitely David Ajo. Yeah.
1: It's not something that gets a lot of play in the James Bond films, because obviously we're following James Bond. But Jeff Keller ruined Marina Stepanova's life. Yes, he did it for the greater good, allegedly. But once he's used this woman and spit her out, he gets a pat on the back for a job well it's done and she gets tortured and cast out for being his patsy. It's the grey area of being a spy that, again, Burn Notice used to touch on quite a lot, that sometimes innocent people get caught in the crossfire or get sacrificed for the greater good. It's doubtful that Jeff Keller ever even thought about Marina stepping over again, but it was a nice scene where she asks if he's dead, and when Velvet confirms that he is, she says, Good. Yeah. So she's not going to go out and get her a vengeance on. There's also this idea that he's not using contraception led to her being cast out. And one wonders how many women he did this to over the course of doing his job. You know, if he'd not been shot in the first, would he have died of an AIDS-related illness five, six years down the line? Could be. For the amount of women that he seduced without using protection. Brubaker is doing subtle commentary on the genre generally here. Women are, are irrelevant... A Momentary distraction of somehow lesser importance, but Marina Stepanova is a great Bond girl type name. Yeah, I thought. Is proof she gives as good as she gets by stabbing her husband, and Brubecker makes her a strong, sympathetic character. Stepanova because she gets walked all over. Uh, See, I don't know whether that's intentional, I just, it's
0: just a that just came Russian me name. yeah
1: just a standard Russian name or something there's also a Rat Pack Ocean's Eleven and a little bit of Leverage and Mission Impossible vibe, vibe to this issue with the undercover operation yeah. isn't that? And it's all got to be done to a schedule and the scamming and the impossible missions and subtitles and the plans that have to be altered at the last minute because somebody doesn't go where they're supposed to go. And... I mean, none of these are bad influences mm. and it all works and gels together quite well. As per mad men, everybody smokes and everybody drinks. Yes. All the time. Well, it was the times, wasn't it? Smoking was good for you. Yeah, smoking. Doctors... Uh, advertised smoking didn't they because mm-hmm. it was after a bad day in surgery <laughs> there's nothing I like better than relaxing with a smoke smoking during surgery well like the doctor in Battlestar Galactic used to do that didn't he Yeah. smoke during surgery the new one Velvet also offers no opinion either way on Keller's actions Keller was doing his job if the flashbacks in the last issue are to be believe she's done exactly the same thing and we see it reinforced in this issue. Do we think she thought about the Ministry Officer's assistant again after she got what she wanted? Mm. I don't think she did. Without meaning to, or maybe deliberately, this issue does raise a pretty good question. Are individual sacrificial lambs to the greater good? And Burke is shaping up to be my favourite supporting character so far. He's very blunt. Yeah. I like that. I like that in a man. It's very funny. Again, there's no text piece, just another three-page, letters page, and more adverts for... Uh, Ed Brubaker's stuff, Sex Criminals, and something by Robert Kirkman called Outcast? What's that?
0: I don't know.
1: Alright, oh, I don't know what that is either. And who's Azaketa? I don't know. Right. Because the advert doesn't really give you anything, does it? No. It's a close-up of somebody's face with a red eye. Is, it, it, is he a Terminator? It looks like a, a vertigo story. Well, it's... Image, image is vertigo now, basically. Yeah. I think. All right. Okay, what do you think of that one? I liked it just <laughs> it's just that, that when you're doing a it, continued it's it was good it yeah. was good yeah. each one was good yeah. there's nothing intrinsically wrong with any of them first and last ones were my favourite. Really? Yes. Alright, i go on. We'll discuss that when we get there. Issue 4 has exactly the same layout style as the others. The title's across the middle, a larger image above, smaller one below. This time Velvet is in the James Bond pose, clutching her weapon in both hands at the side of her head, but she's wearing a mask for a masquerade ball. Below the title, she points her weapon at an off-screen adversary. Her gun again has a suppressor on it, but her head is in a sniper sight. That doesn't happen in the issue. Mm. I'm getting the feeling the covers were drawn plenty before the issues were actually created in Monaco Velvet acknowledges that Belgrade was a disaster she may as well have just have signposted where she was Marina had played to her sympathies and that meant she's gotten soft although Marina did give up a description of who Keller had seen that night Whilst Velvet heads to the Carnival of Fools to locate the man that Marina fingered, an ex-KGB officer named Roman, Ark 7 has been clued into the General's death and pegged it as the work of Velvet Templeton. Burke bails out as Velvet hits the Carnival. She finds Roman and then cases the joint looking for trouble, which she finds. Three assassins, presumably here for Roman. He spent years avoiding the Gulag, so somebody's tipped them off, someone who knew he met Keller. Velvet interferes with the hit, saving Roman's life, and they leave to reminisce about old times. He ditched the KGB after they framed him and became freelance, and when he met Keller on an op, Roman had agreed to not blow Keller's cover in exchange for a favour. Velvet says she thinks it was Ark 7 that gave Roman up, and he spills that Keller had asked about an agent who'd been a mole for the KGB. Roman said the agent in question, codenamed Mockingbird, was never a KGB agent. Velvet's world spirals down a very big hole. name Mockingbird is her ex-husband and thus a major plot point in uh, The thing that struck me about this issue was the lengthy fight scene in the middle of the comic and that Velvet draws attention to the fact that it is lengthy. I was, I once taught a special forces guy at night school. I think you know this story, don't you? Do I? And after bonding over our shared love of Buffy the Vampire Slayer he would occasionally impart some cool non-classified stuff as in like the best way to pick a person down in a fight which is go for the track here and opinions on other units anyway he said the only thing that really drove him nuts about films really was fight scenes he said in a real rumble the idea is to take your opponent down hard and fast prolonged fights are just out of the question because it was one of the things I did like about Burn Notice. I remembered him telling me that. Because I was impressed that producers of Burn Notice, for the most part, got that right. Mm. Michael Weston got into a physical altercation, but he took his opponents out quickly. Bam, 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 and they were gone. He never got into an extended fight scene with them. Mm. He just took them out as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And here Velvet moans via an internal monologue that we're following along with. That the fight has already gone on for too long. She takes out the first two really quite quickly because she has the element of surprise. But at that point, the third is on to her and the fight becomes close quarters where he has the advantage because he's bigger than her and he's stronger than she is. So she doesn't mess around. She just pulls a gun out of her belt and shoots the guy.
0: Well, that's after... After ripping his, face, his off. face off. I liked
1: that. What, digging her thumb into his cheek and pulling her face off? Yeah. See, the thing with this is, we were taught this today. Yeah, somebody's going in for your throat though she's got hold of him though what she needs to do is push his arms together yeah. so his elbows are touching so his hands are prized away slightly so she's got breathing room and then at that point she can do what she's doing Yeah, she
0: completely fails though but I like the kind of realism in the fight Yeah, but I, I really hate the fight scenes in Buffy the Vampire Slayer
1: yes d- d- I know because you think they're just too fast cut and not d- clever enough they're just
0: ballet dancers whereas this it's an actual fight and fights are sloppy and
1: brutal and- mm. And you do wonder why she didn't shoot him earlier. Yeah. If she had that in her stockings, but... Alright, fair enough. Uh, The rest of the issue is just pulp pulp espionage. People aren't who you think they are. There's double-cross, enemies become friends, friends become enemies. It's the dialogue that stands out in this one. My favourite. Like the rest of the world, I have no idea how to play Baccarat. Which I like simply because James Bond and others always know everything, don't they? Yes.
0: Well, doesn't Bond... Just spend his dinner breaks in the novels reading an Aston Martin manual. Yeah, so, so he fully understands how the car
1: works. Yeah, yeah, but he doesn't do that in the films. He always just knows yeah, yeah, yeah. how everything works. At least in the books, we see him learn stuff. Well, the films is action every five minutes. There's no time to learn. The worst ones, um the Pierce Brosnan one with the the car chase in the the parking garage, and he does it all by remote control. When Q gives him that device, he says, oh, don't worry about it, Q, I'll figure it out. Yeah. And then when he gets to the fight, we've never seen any indication that he sat down and learned how to use this, but suddenly he's an expert with it. Yeah. That also was the stupidest thing in any Bond film, that the car is bulletproof, but the glass isn't.
0: Which one was that? It's,
1: I can't remember which one it is, because it's one of Pierce Brosnan's. Right. It's either Tomorrow Never Dies or The World Is Not Enough. It's right. one of them. And the car's just bulletproof but the windows but the windows just shatter. the most important thing yeah only so they can do that gag where the missile flies through the car yeah that's the only reason that the windows aren't bulletproof sloppy very sloppy love the arc 7 computer room which looks just like every 1950s and 60s computer room like shadow hq and ufo all the the computers are big tape reel to reels and yeah, I like that. I like that a great deal. I like the page that you talked about earlier where she zooms in on people, but unlike the previous issue, like you said, the other art just becomes indistinct, doesn't it? Mm. And she's latched onto him and she's she's explaining who they all are. Like she figures out one's a celebrity, one's royalty, one's an assassin, and that's when she's like, "All oh, right, why are they here?" And velvet kicking off her high heels before she gets involved in the fight. Yeah, I thought it was a nice touch. But that, the, the, my problem that I have with that is dancers can dance in high heels, so yeah. women must be able to move in them in somewhere. And if she'd wore a high heels when she kicks that guy in the net, uh, she'd have taken him down a lot quicker. Yeah, if she'd, been, especially if a high heel had a spike in it, like Rosa Klebb <laughs> Yeah, that would have been quite funny. Another favourite line regarding close combat fighting: it's not elegant, it's not an art, it's desperate and it's ugly, which I thought was quite a neat little line. And Velvet talking to Roman, redhead's booze authorita. You had a lot of weaknesses to exploit. And Roman responds with, don't call them weaknesses, especially vodka. That was medication. <laughs> Come on, that was funny. Yeah. Oh, that was a very, very funny line. I ah, this was a great issue. The ex-husband bit may be considered a little piece of cliche, but I trust Rebecca is going to do something different with it. Uh,
0: I, I quite liked the, um, the Russian dialogue. How, you it's know... It's just it, in italics. You know it... No, 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 no. The right. Russian dialogue. You know it's Russian dialogue because the words are backwards.
1: Oh, right, yeah. He, he transposes some of the letters, doesn't he? Yeah. Right, yeah. I liked that as well. I, I know he's doing them all in italics.
0: Yeah, I noticed that, but the
1: Russian in particular is backwards. He does backwards letters. Yeah. Yeah, that was quite cool, that. Did you like this one? Oh, this was my favourite of the four of them, then she won. Yeah. Because this was just action all the way. And... A lot of plot was flown into it as well, even Mm. though it was action-packed. What do you think? Yeah, I I liked it. Uh, David Lapham, Stray Bullets, gets an ad. Four-page letters page again. Three-page. Cowl by Kyle Higgins, who was writing Nightwing for a while. And um, that looks like John Cassidy, doesn't it? It is. Is it?
0: But the bottom one isn't.
1: Right. What is it? It's a bad advert, because I don't know what it's advertising. It's for Starlight. Right. Oh, that's in very, very small letters at the bottom. Yes. It makes you think that it's intergalactic.
0: Well, look at the um, velvet one in the last issue.
1: Oh, I. use for intrigue. Yeah. They're very nice pieces of art, but they fail as adverts because they don't actually make it clear what they're advertising. Yeah. I think that's a big fail, that. Issue 5 is the only cover to break with the pulp vibe of the series and evokes Jeff Lindsay's Dexter novels. Pulps in their own right rather than Fleming. A white glove of the variety worn to dinner parties partially moves upwards, blood spatter flying off a hand razor. I like it. I do, I like it as well, but like I said, that's more Dexter than Bond. There's a lot of
0: symbolism in it. Go on. Right. That's a glove. Yeah. Sometimes we wear gloves like that with red and wedding dresses, right? Yes. It's white. Okay. Yes. Also, that's a knife. Yes. It's a shaving knife. Yes. It's a male shaving knife. Yes. That's a female hand.
1: Yes. Very, good. Yeah, so. mm, very good. yeah. So. Very good. Ah, oh, student boy. Yeah, yeah. You're back in the swing a bit now. I am. Yeah. No, like when we did Hulk Gray, and you're like, oh, I can't be bothered <laughs> analysing the symbolism. <laughs> Uh, Issue 5, flashback time. Velvet Templeton's father used to be a spy. No, he was a spy. Friends with Roosevelt, top secret stuff. Velvet would rifle through his papers and read all about this woman who crossed the Alps on skis and dodged a Nazi patrols, Lady Pauline. During the war, Velvet was shipped off to boarding school, where she met Lady Pauline herself, a tough-as-nails, borderline drunk, but one who took an interest in Velvet as the first female recruit. I don't see how that can be if Pauline's an agent, but okay, whatever. The years took their toll and Pauline was killed one night by a jealous lover. She didn't even fight back. In those years, Velvet had graduated and married Richard Donovan, codenamed Mockingbird. Betrayal was never far away when you're a spy, and so it turned out with Richard, believed to be a double agent, he killed Pauline. Velvet had thought so when she tossed him out the window. But now if Roman was right, he wasn't a double agent. Which means Keller's death is just the tip of a larger iceberg. Ark 7 has had a weed growing for years. A weed that has seen Velvet Templeton grow into what she has become. But they've forgotten who she really is. Time to remind them. See, I'm wondering if Pauline's still alive and if it's her pulling all these strings.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, I did lie, I have to be honest. Uh, after the excellent build-up from the previous four issues, I, I was actually let down by this one. Not by the story in and of itself. Yeah. I just didn't think this was the right place for a who she is and how she came to be origin story, especially when it's quite an unremarkable one. I mean, I appreciate that Brubaker... ...has written an issue that in and of itself is tense and well done... ...and Epton's art is as good as ever... ...but Velvet's origin basically boils down to... ...she's a spy because she thinks it's worthwhile... ...but primarily because it's cool. I mean, I appreciate also that he's not going for a... ...a whole death in the family vengeance vibe... Mm. ...I thought that was quite interesting... And there are seeds being planted here for later with Richard and Lady Pauline, but velvet's beginnings are rather unremarkable. You know I appreciate there's no tragic backstory that 's quite novel nowadays, but went to boarding school, studied to be a spy, is really good at it isn't quite up though with watching his parents killed before his eyes it's vows to dress as a bat for the rest of his career, is it. Mm. You know, I suspect we'll learn more about her father as we go along as well, but I wanted more of the main plot. And this felt like an interlude, just as things were starting to get really good. I did like that both she and her husband thought the other one was a double agent. Yeah. I thought that was quite good. Well,
0: I really liked this issue.
1: I liked it, I just don't think it was placed well. Um... Go on. See, if you're reading this in trade, this is the last issue. That's my problem with it. Isn't it? I think it's placed
0: well, but only if there was... Or only if you're reading
1: it monthly. Yeah, this
0: isn't a good issue for... For, as a wrap-up to that story. But if there was more of it, then yeah, it's it's a good place to have it. The, um, The conversation at the end of the last issue sent her into flashback. Yeah. So if this was the middle or the penultimate, yeah, okay, fine. But because it's the end...
1: Yeah, but this is the last chapter of the opening story arc. Yeah. And as such, I think it's a bit of a, a disappointment. Mm. It's like, they should have, maybe they should have wrapped it up with issue four, with her just meeting Roman and yeah. not led into a cliffhanger, and this had been the start of the next trade. I think yeah. that may have worked better. I mean, you've still been a bit gypped by the fact that the story doesn't end.
0: Yeah, well, this but story it's...
1: could be going off for thirty, forty issues. Yeah, we may be twenty, twenty-five, thirty issues down the line before we kill who find out who killed Jeff Keller. Could be Captain America all over again. It could be, but I I <clears throat> really liked this issue. Yeah, in and of in and of itself, it's a good issue. Well, do you not think her origins a bit unremarkable? No. Do you not? Do you like that it's unremarkable?
0: Yeah, it's, she's training, but I like her naive ideals about the woman who taught her. How she had so many faults and problems, but because she idolised her, she didn't see them. She ignores them to this day. Yeah, and I like the the marriage and how the spies—they don't—they're married and they may feel like they love each other, but they don't trust each other. No, and that leads to the downfall where they both think the other is a, a double
1: agent. Yeah. So you maybe like it more? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's that's not fun. I didn't not like it. But, like Saz, if you're reading this in trade paper this is the last chapter. And I think this is a disappointing chapter to end a trade paper back on. Yeah. Is my thinking. Maybe, like I said, they should have switched them round. But, you know, none of this takes away from the fact that Velvet is, for my money, one of Image's best books. And at the moment, that's a hotly contested title. Saga... May get all of the plaudits, but Brubaker, along with Epting and Sean Phillips over on Fatal, have been creating noir drenched stories of moral ambiguity for a while now. And I think this is the the finest work to date. Yeah. I really do think it's great. I know Brubaker's a fan of The Carpet Baggers, which was a BBC show from um, the Sandbaggers, sorry, not the Carpet Baggers, from the, the 70s, but I get a Callan vibe from Velvet. While she operates in the, the hyper-glamorous world of James Bond, there's still a touch of the seedier side of spying, as typified by Edward Woodward in that show. And for all its elegance, Velvet isn't afraid of showing the cost of being a spy. Do you like that?
0: Mm-hmm. I like the, the cover for the graphic novel.
1: It, that's the cover for the next issue.
0: Is it? Yeah, that's the
1: cover for next month. Secret oh, Lives yeah. of Dead Men is chapter one of the next story. Oh, right? Right, right, right. How's of this recording? I've only got issue six. It doesn't seem to be keeping a monthly schedule, which irritates me slightly. The first five issues are available in one of Image's cheap trade paperbacks, as in less than $10. Oh, they're doing that for all of them? Yeah, I don't know if they're doing that for all of them, but they're certainly doing it to get you interested in the opening arc. Well worth checking out, I think, if you like Spies and Espionage. Did you enjoy that? I did. Good. I'm always glad when you enjoy something. It was like such a chore to get you to read something you don't like. Isn't it?
0: <laughs> to be honest, I'm not sure if I would have liked it as much if it w- didn't have the
1: Cold War espionage backdrop. I know, but that's just such a part of it. You mean if it was present day? Yeah. The fact that it's a period piece?
0: Yeah, because he did that with Captain America.
1: Mm. and it was boring oh see I like his Captain America run. I do agree with you it went on too long he did stay longer by his own admission he stayed longer than he should have done yeah
0: but it was Captain America but it turned into uh, espionage well he turned it into
1: 24 didn't he yeah so that's what he was going for update Captain America by turning it into 24 God, I liked it that's where I first discovered Ed Brubaker so and now I've pretty much read most of his stuff since then so Mm -hmm. he did something right didn't it Next time on an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics. Episode 199. Duh. Oh. Oh, exciting, We're isn't getting that? close to
0: 1980. We're
1: getting close to being rebooted, yeah. And being recast. Yes. By other actors who well, aren't as good quite frankly.
0: are <laughs> younger and have better hair. Huh?
1: No, no, they're just not as good. Oh, okay. No, Coy and Vance do too, just were no good. <laughs> uh, what are we doing next week? Oh, yeah! Oh, next week's very exciting. I'm looking forward <laughs> to next okay. week. Next week should just be one big long argument between you and me. All right, okay. About who would win in a fight between... Did you
0: do that anyway? Just leave the recorder on?
1: Yes, that's true. But next week, we're looking at Marvel versus DC slash DC versus Marvel. The four-issue miniseries from 1996, I think it was. Right. So we're, we're keeping it, not in but 90s, are yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 Unintentionally. So that's what we're doing next time. Very briefly, we'll look at the amalgam stuff as well, but very, very, very briefly. <laughs> we don't want the episode be two hours long again. Well, we hope you will join us for that. Thank you, everybody who emails in, either regularly or not regularly. We appreciate your feedback, and we always love receiving it. We'll see you next week for episode 100. Hey, kids! Comics is a the devil will find work for idle hands to do production. The music and sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only, and no infringement is intended, so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us, as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream, as no money is made from this either, which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.